We are in another favorite from the book of Psalms, Psalm 19. And I've been loving the Psalms. I hope you are. I hope it establishes, if it's not already there, a pattern in your life where you are regularly living in the Psalms, drawing from them, learning from them, having your mind, your heart um, shaped by them. So tonight, today, whatever this is, Psalm 19. Hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day by day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now, Lord, this is your word written, penned so long ago for our good generation after generation, that we might learn where we see You, how to see You, and how to respond to what we have seen of You. So give us alert attention this morning. Don't let us be robbed by the robber of Your good Word who steals the seed that is scattered along the road, but let it find receptive hearts and soil so that it might bear good fruit. Generation after generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a psalm about how God makes Himself known so that we might see His glory and to respond to Him with joyful faith and obedience. So do you know Him? Have you seen Him this morning? How does God make Himself known to people like us, sinners who can't see spiritual things with natural eyes? Well, God makes Himself known to us through two books, two places where His glory and power are put on display for us. First, there is the book of nature, where God makes Himself known through all that He has made. And then second, there is the book of Scripture, where God reveals even more clearly who He is and what He requires of us. And so the book of nature and the book of Scripture 
also called general revelation and special revelation. And these are the instruments that God has given so that we may know Him. That is what this psalm is about. And so let's look at that, first of all, by looking at general revelation. God makes His glory known first in the book of nature. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So go outside and look up. What do you see? Well, on a clear day, blue sky and the shining sun. A day like today, maybe a bunch of clouds. If it's night, sun, moon, stars, constellation, galaxies, and other marvels. But you look up and it is so beautiful. I remember when our daughter Stephanie was a baby and we lived in Texas. And one night um, I carried her out under that huge Texas sky. And I guess she was so young she'd not really seen it before. She goes to bed before all those stars come out. And as we're walking to the car, I hear a gasp in my ear. And she just... <gasps> and she's looking up. And she's just just mesmerized by the by the beauty that she sees all around her. Well, all of that verse 1 says, is shouting the news. God has made us, it says. Look up here and see our glory. Stand in awe under this night sky. Appear into the infinite vastness and beauty of space. And when you see it, know this. God has made us. Any glory that you see in us is His. He covered us with this beauty. He gave us this all. And so when you see us, think of Him. Because we are but a pale reflection of His true glory. Do you see the heavens like that? That is the impact they are meant to have upon us. And only the blinders of our sin keep us from seeing it. Uh, Creation itself is the sanctuary of divine majesty. Or as uh, John Calvin said, it is the theater of God's glory. Here His greatness is seen. Do you see it? Can you hear the song that nature is shouting at you day after day, night after night, as verse 2 says. The words here in verse 2 indicate that the heavens are not just whispering God's glory, they're shouting it. It says that they pour forth their speech like a rushing stream flowing relentlessly out of the heavens through the light of every single star. And trying to get our attention... Look, they say. Look, listen to our wordless speech. Oh, that you would see it. And again, do you see it? When's the last time you went out under a clear night sky and just marveled at the majesty of God? And of course, it is a wordless majesty. Verse 3 says there is no speech. There are no actual words heard. I've called it the book of nature, but there's not an actual book there. There aren't pages that you can read. There's no actual words inscribed there. But they shout without a sound, don't they? 
They speak without words. And yet their sound resounds throughout the entirety of the universe. And it's not subtle. It's not hidden. It is something that we are meant to see, and in fact is meant to be seen by every single eye on this planet. Verse 4 says their voice, or better, it would be translated, their loud cry goes out to the whole of the earth. So that all are without excuse. No one can say, I didn't see it. They did see it. They just ignored it. You've seen it. One of the great tragedies of our modern secular age is the way that it blinds us to God's glory. We have labored as human beings to obscure the heavens and all that they clearly proclaim about God. We obscure them with our technology. Now, I'm not saying technology is bad. I kind of like technology. But I'm saying that this is what inevitably happens because of the technology with which we have surrounded ourselves. You stand in the middle of a city and with the lights and all the sounds that man has made, you cannot see what God has made. You can't see the glory of God because you are surrounded by the glory of what man himself has manufactured. And it really is a kind of a parable of what secularism does to us. It obscures the reality of God's presence. It hides His glory from us. And of course, it's not just technology. It is also caused by the cold indifference of our own hearts. In our sin... We do not want to see God. Because we do not want there to be an all-glorious One above to whom we are accountable. Uh, The Apostle Paul picks up on that thought in the first chapter of Romans we read last week. Beginning in verse 19, he says, "...for what can be known about God is plain to them," meaning all mankind, "...because God has shown it to them." For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Notice that. Without excuse. The beauty and glory of God is so clearly etched in creation that everyone ought to see and celebrate it. So why don't we? Back in verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul tells us it's because by our unrighteousness we suppress the truth that we see. We press it down. We refuse to acknowledge it. So that as Paul continues in verse 21 of that chapter, for although they knew God, He was so evident they couldn't miss Him, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Fools. The fool is the one who refuses to acknowledge what his eye can plainly see. That is the plight of all mankind, you included apart from Christ, in our sin. Rather than seeing and celebrating the glory of God and joining the created universe in His praise, we choose instead to see... Astrological signs. 
And we put together horoscopes that we think can somehow influence or predict our fate. How foolish that is. I hope you're not involved in something dumb like that. It's pointless and empty. It obscures the glory of God. Or we write it all off as chance and mere physics. I love physics, but if it's just mere physics, then you look up and what do you see? You see the cold emptiness of space where we ought instead to find the warm embrace of His majesty. And again, how foolish. But the sinful heart can never see what it simply refuses to see. And then at the end of verse 4, the psalmist, and this is David here, shifts from creation in general to speak specifically about the sun. Verse 4, last line, he says, In these heavens God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Now this is poetic language, of course, but it's, it's for a reason. Because many ancient cultures worship the sun itself as a god. Uh, the Babylonians called him Shamash or Shapsu. And in their myths, he, the sun, was pictured as a bridegroom who rose from his bed each morning to run his course through the heavens before returning to rest once more in the arms of his bride, the sea. And so David picks up on that myth and he says, Oh no, Babylon, you got it all wrong. Yeah, the sun kind of looks like that. The sun is kind of like that bridegroom that you picture, but the sun is not a god to be worshipped. It is a servant of God shouting the news across the skies that He, God, is the one to be worshipped. I love this picture of the sun as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber with joy. Just picture the way Luke is going to come out of his house this coming Saturday on his way to Mary Abbey. Just that many days, brother. Can you see the smile radiating across his face? The joy with which he will approach his beautiful bride on his wedding day? Can you just picture that joy? If not, probably look at him right now. And the psalmist says, that's how the sun leaps to the service of God. And it's how we should serve Him also. Friends, creation speaks. It shouts. It sings to the glory of God. And it calls us to join in. And oh, you ought to join in. Just take some time this week, if you can find it, to step outside and contemplate the majesty of God revealed in all that He has made. It's all around you. And yet, as glorious as that revelation is, there is something far, far better. Not just the book of nature, but second of all, special revelation. God makes Himself known even more clearly in the book of Scripture. Notice the change in verse 7. Now he speaks of the law of the Lord. He says it's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Oh, this is a song of the glory of God revealed in Scripture. And notice, it is a much more glorious revelation than what we see in nature. The psalmist does something very subtle here, but it's very instructive. Notice that in those first six verses about nature, he only mentions God once, in verse 1, using the very general term for God, El. Because general revelation, as glorious as it is, and though it does tell us about God, it doesn't tell us that much. But special revelation, God's Word, oh, it gives us so much more. Notice how he indicates that here. Beginning in verse 7, we now have the name of Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, seven times, God's personal covenant name, because here we have much more detail and the perfect personal revelation of the covenant God who saves. And that's what the Bible gives us. Not just vague hints about God, but clear knowledge and understanding of God. And so to show us that, he paints six pictures of the beauty of God's Word in verses 7-9 through and shows us what good this Word brings into our lives. And notice how he does that too. There's a structure here. In each of these six pictures, he's going to give us, first of all, a noun. Remember your grammar, a noun that names a quality of God's Word. Verse 7, it's called the law Uh, the testimony, the precepts, verse 8. So those are names for God's Word. Then in each case, He gives us an adjective to describe its beauty. Again, verse 7, it's perfect. It's pure. Verse 8, it is right. And so forth. And then in each case, He then gives us a verb, you know, a word of action, which then tells us the power of this Word and indicates to us what it does for us. Verse 7, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. Uh, it rejoices the heart, verse 8. Verse eight. And, and so you ought to look at each of these later on your own. But six times he's going to lay this out for us. Because he wants us to get it. And so first of all, he calls it God's law. The law of the Lord which is perfect. Reviving the soul. So it is His law, meaning this is God's faithful declaration of what He requires for every human being. And notice that it's perfect. That is, it is flawless. It never errs or misleads us about God. It is inerrant, as we would say. Therefore, um, it will never mislead you about who God is or what God requires or, or, or what He has made. It is a sure and certain light, a guide for life. Therefore, it is life-giving. It revives the soul. Now, how does it do that? Well, by bringing us to repentance. This word revive means to return. Uh, it actually is picturing this turning us from our sin back to God who is the source of life and where once we are Connected to Him, we find life. Second, the testimony of God is sure. Uh, That means it will not fail you. A testimony 
is that which tells the truth about someone. God's Word is His own testimony about Himself. It is His covenant Word of promise where He reveals Himself so that we may truly know Him. And notice we're told it is sure, which means you can put your weight down on it and it won't give way. It won't fall out under your feet. It will not fail you. And we can use the word there, infallible. It won't fail to bring you the truth about God and life and everything He requires. That's why it has power to make wise the simple. It shows us dummies what's real out there. Um, It gives us the wisdom which is the right application of truth that we need. It shows us what is good. It shows us how to live. Because to live in a God-made, God-ruled universe without any real knowledge of God is the very height of stupidity. But this is wisdom. Third, the precepts of the Lord are right. A precept is something that God has appointed for us to have. Something for our good. And His Word is like that. It is, it is, it is right It is never wrong about what we need to do and how we must live. You look at what it says and you will see what is right and good in a way that will keep you from evil and harm. One of my commentaries said, whenever a culture in rebellion against God, whatever it might say contrary to God, God's precepts and commandments are what determine what is morally right. And so let the culture proclaim what it will. Whenever and wherever it contradicts God's Word, it is wrong. Morally wrong. Tragically wrong. Because God's Word is right. But not only is it right, because it is right, it brings us the greatest joy. Look again at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Doing what? Rejoicing the heart. There is joy in a life of obedience to God. Real joy. Lasting joy. Oh, young people, listen to me. This is the joy that I want for you. This is the joy that your godly parents want for you. This insane world will tell you that the way to find joy is to defy God's Word. To follow your own heart instead. To go your own way. But that, that is the path of misery, ultimately not joy. There is a way that seems right to you in your sin, but it leads always to death and misery. And we could stop the service right now and have about a dozen testimonies from people in this room that have tasted that misery because they shunned God's Word to go their own way and they would give anything to keep you from doing that. Right? Amen? Is that right? If you have a testimony like that, put your hand up. Yeah. Here's people that would say, you talk to me. I'll tell you where that road goes. You don't want to go there. And friend, I would spare you that. God's ways are always best. They lead to the greatest joy possible. So that you must, but, but you must know this Word to pursue this joy. Fourth, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Uh, Commandment refers to God's instruction for our good. 
Deuteronomy 10 verse 13 says, Keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which He has given for your good. Every command of God is for your good and will lead to good if you will follow it. And how does it lead? Notice it says it gives light to our eyes. In fact, that word pure means radiant. So it's, it's so pure that light shines through it and it lights up and it, it lights your way because Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path leading me safely through this dark and troubled world of sin. Um, that, that leading me away from the darkness it brings into the light God promises. Understand, God does not give you commands to keep you from good, but to lead you to it. To keep you from the sin that will devastate your life and take you far from God. And so this radiant Word lights your way as you take it in and follow its course day by day. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean. God's Word taken into your life produces a reverence for God. The more you see and know Him, the less you care what Facebook thinks or what your friends think or what a rebel world thinks. You only care what God thinks because He is the one before whom you must stand and give an account for your life. And and that reverence for God, caring what He thinks, no matter what anyone else thinks, that reverence has a cleansing power. It sanctifies you as you let it do its cleansing work in your life. John 17.17, Jesus said to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. This Word taken to heart can make the filthy clean because it brings us to Christ. It can wash a dirty mind and cleanse a soiled conscience. Dear one, you you want to have this water of the Word running freely through your mind day after day, washing away the dirt and grime and filth that you picked up. Sixth, the rules or rulings of the Lord are true and righteous Altogether, What God determines to be right is right, no matter what anyone else says or thinks, because they are true. They are true. Look at that. What does true mean? True means that they conform to reality. They describe what is really real. They tell us what life is really about and what is really out there. Man's words don't always do that. Man's words are often just fantasy uh, verbiage uh, telling us what people selfishly wish the truth was, but they have no power to influence the truth. Wishing doesn't make something true. I could tell you that I'm a woman, but my words cannot change my DNA, nor God's good creation which He made and proclaimed that I might know and walk with Him. God's words are always true because they are what define reality. And if I'm going to live in reality, I must have that truth. I need God to show me what is good that I may walk in it and know Him and enjoy the life that He intended. I need His Word living in me to change my mind and shape my heart and orient my soul to Him daily. Because also notice God's Word... Verses 10 and 11 is not something that I should begrudge and just you know take like castor oil. It's gross, but I guess i got to have it. It is something I should embrace with joy. 
Verse 10, More to be desired are these words than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter are they than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So how do you view God's Word? Do you see it as more precious than gold? Can you honestly say that? If someone walked up to you this week and offered you $10 million to throw away your Bible and never touch it or another again, would that be tempting to you? Seriously. Would you, would you say, hey, that's a deal? $10 million, just throw this old book away and never look at it again? You know, if, if that's tempting to you, that tells us a lot about the condition of your soul and what you really do truly value. Mere money? Over the golden word of God? Or let's make that even more practical. Are you willing to lose your job for what is written here? Or lose friends? Or lose family? Or be hated and slandered because of what is written here? Is hearing and knowing God through His Word more precious to you than anything money can buy so that you are actively, daily treasuring it up like a greedy miser hoards gold? You're saying, I value this. I want it in my life. Or does it sit idly week after week untouched? Because you don't value it. Is it sweeter than honey to you? Now, honey was the sweetest substance they knew in those days. You go out somewhere, you find some honey out there, man, you hit the jackpot. I mean, this is the best stuff. I love this. Mmm, it's good. Right? Do you see God's Word like that? You love it. You have just a little bit of it. You want it more because it's that sweet. I think one reason that we don't engage God's Word more than we do is that we don't value it as we should. We take it for granted. We don't taste its sweetness. Christian, God's Word is your treasure. Are you treating it like a treasure? Precious and valuable, making it a priority. Other things can fall away, but this can't. Is it your delight? You, you, you love its taste. Because when you delight in something, you, you want as much of it as you can get. Does your life reflect the high value you place on seeing God in His Word because you delight in it and you're seeking it? Even in the midst of a busy life, you're saying, where can I fit it in? Why should you do that? Well, because verse 11 says, number one, it warns you. (laughs) It shows you the pitfalls of sin that otherwise you would fall into. I mean, some of you right now, if we were to stop and and have personal conversations, some of you right now are feeling the sting of such consequences. Things the Word would have warned you of, but someone cut down the yield sign and you ran right through and you got run over. God's Word would spare you that as you take it in. And second, because obedience brings great reward. Notice not just a little reward, great reward. Living by God's Word keeps us in fellowship with Jesus where, this passage says, our souls are revived, wisdom is given, joy is supplied, light guides our way, and truth leads us to eternity. It is by means of God's Word that God gives these many blessings that He has promised to us. But it is the neglect of this Word that often leaves those promises untapped and unenjoyed and we suffer the consequences of our own willful ignorance. 
But that brings me then to this final section. Our response to what God shows us in the world and in His Word. Verses 12 to 14. What is our response? We must hear Him speak and respond with faith-filled obedience to His Word. Verse 12. Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now you'll notice this is a prayer. Do you see how he switched uh, back to first person? He himself is speaking here. The psalmist is praying three things in light of what he has seen of God in the world and especially in his word. And we need to pray these things in response to his word. First of all, we pray, Lord, show me my sins and justify me by faith as I turn to You. Verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. One problem that we all have is that we often just don't see our sin. We become nose-blind to it. You know what nose-blind means, right? Uh, I don't want to offend anybody here, but those of us who have pets need to be really careful about this. right? You ever walk in a house and say, there's a cat in here somewhere, or some dirty dog, or a hamster. Yeah, I smell it. They're, they're, I, I've got an allergy for some reason to hamsters. And sometimes I'll walk into a house and within five minutes my eyes are itchy and red. and you know They don't smell a thing, but it's about to, it's about to strangle me. Um, so anyone who walks into your house smells the animal, but you who live there, you can't smell it anymore, right? Why? Because you become nose-blind to it. We become nose-blind in the same way to the stench of our own sin. And we need something or someone to come along and point it out to us so that we can see it and, and know how gross it is. And God's Word is that something. It clears the air. It brightens the room. It shows you what is really there. And when it does, you, you, you can say, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, do what only You can do here. Declare me innocent. Expose the sin that I've hidden for so long and bring it to the cross of Christ where there it can be publicly crucified and taken away. Justify me by faith in what Christ has done so that I'm innocent before You. So that by faith in His blood, I can be declared clean. Listen, that is the only remedy for your sin. Covering it over with Febreze doesn't do it. It must be taken to the cross of Christ. And oh, what a remedy that is. And the Word of God through the, the Gospel gives that to you. Second, we pray, Lord, turn me from my sin so it no longer has dominion over me. Verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is a cry for sanctification. We've been justified by faith, taking our sins to the cross of Christ, but now we need to be sanctified by grace. This means you know, God must lead us in daily holiness that, that honors and pleases Him. And so not only do I need my sins forgiven... I don't want them ruling over my life. I want to be free from their power. 
And so I pray, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. This is a good passage for you to add to your daily quiet time. Now, what is a presumptuous sin? Well, it's, it's, it's a sin that I choose to sin. I know it's sin. I see it as sin. But I sin anyway because, hey, God's going to forgive me. The Apostle Paul is talking about this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? In light of all this grace that forgives our sins, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Then in the strongest word possible, by no means, never. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so we fall into this pattern of looking at our forgiveness and saying, well, I'm forgiven anyway. Might as well just sin. No. No, no one who knows the riches of God's grace can continue to do that because we know that our sin is poison to our lives. We know that it's a destroyer of ourselves and those around us. So, so yes, it is true, Christians will still sin as long as they're in their life, but no Christian can afford to be casual about even one sin. We cannot take them lightly. Because if you're a Christian, you will hate your sin. I mean, your sin is what crucified your Lord. When you look at Him up on the cross, my sin placed Him there. Your sin is what poisons your life and hinders your relationships. And so with the psalmist, you cry out, don't let these sins have dominion over me. Break their power. Lord, apply Romans 6.14 to my life, for sin shall have no dominion over you, because you're not under law, but under grace. That's the cry of a Christian. That's the earnest heart desire of of, a man or woman who has cultivated their mind and heart in God's Word. And so the psalmist says, Lord, work this in me so that I am blameless. My life is not stained and sullied by these great sins. I am free to walk as closely with you as a redeemed sinner can. That's what we desire. Friend, that's what the Word is bringing to you as you're consistently seeking it and applying it to your life. And you say, well, I read it today. I didn't see it happen. Well, goodness gracious, some five-year-old said, I ate my meal, Mommy. I'm not six foot tall now. Right? No, this is a long process. I remember Tony being that little guy. you know, And he didn't you know, just eat the beans and sprout up like this. Right? It took years. Of, of, of good meals from his mom and, and food given to him. So that little by little, eating those meals and incorporating all those proteins and carbohydrates, you know, the, the body grows and we do the same thing with Scripture, feeding upon it so that it's crafting and molding and shaping and growing us. Third, we pray, Lord, let me be thoroughly Christian through and through as I live in daily fellowship with you. Verse 14. Boy, I would would almost challenge you to pray this every morning this week. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Again, this is a prayer. It's a good prayer. Do, Do you pray like this? Lord, let every word that comes out of my mouth, every thought that passes through my mind, be acceptable or pleasing to you. It starts with the mind. What is your mindset? What is your mind dwelling on? Are you being renewed, as, as Paul says in Romans, by the re- are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? How do you do that? How is this possible? 
It's only possible when God's Word permeates that mind because it's been treasured within your heart. It's been filling both your mind and your mouth consciously. That Word is in your mind. You're thinking about it. It's in your mouth. You're repeating it. You're saying it. And so the point of this is, dear one, do this. Don't just say, I can't get victory over sin. Do this. Well, I did it yesterday. It didn't work. No, do it every single day. Fill your mind and mouth with God's Word daily so that you're letting it shape the whole of your life. You need help learning to do this. Talk to one of us. If we need to have a class, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish the, the mortification of, of, of sin here in a couple of weeks. If we need to do a class on how to have a quiet time, how to get into God's Word, sure, we'll do it. It's not, it's not hard. It won't take long. It just takes long for you to apply. <laughs> uh, but, but we'll do it. Whatever we need to do, because then you will know, not just in your mind, but experientially, as the psalmist does, the Lord who is your rock and your redeemer. You'll know Him as your rock, steadfast, immovable, strong defender. And you'll know Him as your redeemer. The one who forgives you of your sin, saves you from your own foolishness, and keeps bringing you along, freeing you from those sins that once held on to you. This is the life of the Christian. You hear people talk about the, uh, the uh, victorious Christian life. And I don't know about you, but early in my Christian life, I wanted that. I heard about it. And I, had these, I went to seminars and read people's books that basically offered me a real quick one, two, three, shebang, and, and you're, you're, a, you're a victorious Christian. Well, that's all nonsense. Uh, victorious Christian living, if you want to use that term, comes from step by step, day by day, hearing and applying God's Word along with others, praying like this, seeking God, falling flat on your face in the mud, getting up again, going to Him, letting Him wash you, and then going at it again, and going at it again, and having that Word in you, and failing for the 43rd time on this one thing that I thought I had beat, but I take it to Jesus, and I, and I, and I put His Word in my heart, that Word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, and I keep in a long obedience in one direction, following Jesus, and lo and behold, little by little, step by step, I grow into this grace this psalm is talking about. So this week, go outside, look up in the heavens, see the glory of God, celebrate it, remind yourself of it every time you walk outside, but then make a priority of hiding God's Word in your heart, reading through it, start in the Psalms, start with Jesus in the Gospels, and just let it have its transforming work in your heart. Amen? Father, would you help us? We are on this journey. It begins by salvation. We become a Christian first. It's not that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or just read the Word and apply it by fleshly power. That won't work. Some of us have tried it. But humbling ourselves before Christ, confessing to Him our sin, and confessing Him as Lord, and setting our new heart to follow Him day by day, You will grow us in this grace. Lord, please do that in our lives. Do it in our children's lives. Let them catch the desire. Lord, we can preach, we can teach, we can discipline, but unless they catch this desire, unless they come to see Your Word and Your truth as better than gold and, and sweeter than honey, Lord, it will, never, it will never carry them through life. And so would You make it their greatest desire and greatest treasure, and would You cause us to live in the middle of that in this dark, toxic world we live in, that we might walk with You for Christ's sake. Amen.